This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. The Minneapolis police officer who kneeled on the neck of George Floyd was training new recruits. One of the trainees was on his third day on the job. That got me thinking, how are police trained? What type of education do police officers receive? And are there any connections between the type and quality of education and training to the excessive police force so common in black communities? I would say there's not any strong evidence that education, separate from other factors, uh, significantly affects police behavior. There have been some studies, some individual studies, that suggest that uh, officers with higher levels of education might be less likely to use force, might uh, uh, engage in less misconduct, have fewer complaints against them. But those have not been big studies, they've been small, so their generalizability is really sort of unknown. I'd also say that one of the most common types of studies over the years has been surveys. So it's, you know, survey hundreds, thousands of police officers on various topics. Uh, and among other things, of course, ask them about their level of education. And usually on those kinds of surveys, uh, the impact of level of education is nil. Uh, it just washes out. My guest today is Gary Cordner, a retired professor and dean, former police officer and former police chief. Most recently, he served as chief research advisor to the National Institute of Justice in the U.S. Department of Justice. He has actively studied and written about community policing, police administration, police agency accreditation, and police education. We spoke last week on a range of issues, including structural racism within police departments and the prospects of defunding the police. Gary Cordner, welcome to Fresh Ed. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks. So what went through your mind when you learned about the death of George Floyd? Uh, horrible tragedy, of course, um, and not the first uh, that we've seen in recent years. I don't know that initially I anticipated that it would have the sort of national, even international impact that it has had. And when you looked at the video as a police officer, someone who has studied policing and the education of police officers for many years, did you think that the officers responded in any way that might be seen as excessive or were they following proper procedures in your mind? It was definitely excessive, uh, way out of bounds. You know, it's, it's inevitable that in the course of doing police work, some degree of force is, is sometimes used. Uh, it's part of the, part of the business. It's, it's part of why we have police because sometimes bad things happen and a forceful response is needed to protect others. Uh, but that was so far beyond uh, uh, anything that anybody in policing had ever been trained to do. So far outside of you know policies that nearly every police department has, uh, that it, it was really shocking. One of the things that shocked me was that the man that had his knee on George Floyd's neck was a training officer, right? Like he, he was responsible for the, the on-the-job training of young police officers. And it made me start thinking about, well, the education of police officers. How does that actually happen? And, and you're quite well-placed to, to talk about this. You've done quite a lot of research on the history of education in, of policing. So can you give us a little sense of, you know, what sort of training and education do police officers even receive? And, and thinking of it more historically. 
So that's a big question uh, and an important one for sure. In the United States, and that's what I'm most familiar with, police training started to become more systematic, more universal in the 1960s and 70s. I mean, that's been 50 years ago now, but not so long ago, I suppose, in the whole sweep of, of U.S. police history. So in other words, before that, we'd had police departments for 100 years or more, and training was sort of, I think, catch as catch can. It wasn't that uncommon, say, 100 years ago. Uh, the police officer would be hired, given virtually no training, uh, given some tools of the trade, uh, possibly uh, put with an experienced officer for a while to learn by apprenticeship and then begin uh, performing the job. So uh, the history of systematic, uh, thorough, extensive training is, let's say, relatively recent in the U.S. And so since the 1960s, when this systematic training first emerged, and then obviously I would imagine have, has changed over the last 50 or 60 years, you know, what are police officers learning today, either before they join the police force, and then also during and inside of the police force? I don't know how we would even begin to talk about this. Like, you know, how many police officers are like going to university? Is that a requirement to get a job these days in the police force? In the US, um, the answer would be no. Now, can I start by saying that it's really hard to give any uh, standard answer about anything related to policing in the United States. The U.S. has 18,000 literally separate independent police departments. And so each of them independently, individually decides whether, for example, to require a university degree. Across those 18,000 police departments, there are a few that require a university degree. The vast majority do not. Um, typically, the requirement is uh, what, what we in the U.S. call a high school degree, you know, 12 years of, of uh, grade school. Uh, now, that's typically the minimum requirement. By the same token, if we actually look at the, you know, the population of police in the United States, something roughly around one third have actually got university degrees, even though it's, as I said, not required. And uh, part of the story behind that uh, is that in the United States, in most states, again, nothing is, nothing is standard, but in most states, you have to be 21 years old to become a police officer. Uh, in the U.S., uh, most people graduate from grade school about age 18. So there's a three-year gap there. And young people in the U.S., uh, some go to work, some go in the military, really the majority go to some version of college or university. And that's part of the reason why then once they turn 21 or, or older and decide to try to become police, many of them have already had some amount of university, often a degree. And are the, are the subjects that, that police officers study, you know, wide ranging or are they concentrated in, in a few particular subjects? They are wide ranging. And I'm not aware of any police department. Again, how do you know for sure about 18,000 different agencies? But I'm not aware of any police department that specifically requires a degree in a specific topic. Usually if they require, let's say, two years of college or a four-year degree, university degree, usually there's no specification of the degree, the major that the student, the individual has to have studied. Uh, however, that said, what has become 
the most common uh, university avenue to police work in the United States is what we call, tend to call criminal justice. Uh, in the U.S., you can get a university degree in criminal justice in hundreds, if not thousands, of different colleges and universities. And that became the sort of de facto most common approach in the late 60s and 1970s. Uh, for, I think for a variety of reasons, it, it sort of coalesced around that degree in criminal justice. And what would, in criminal justice, what would students be learning about? Yeah, that's a very good question. And, and uh, once again, I apologize because I'll probably overgeneralize a little bit because there are hundreds and thousands of those, of those degrees, each creating their own curriculum. Uh, but in general, probably about uh, one quarter of a university degree in criminal justice would be in courses that are focused on crime and justice, criminal justice, criminology, law, typically at least one or two classes about the police, but possibly also classes about juvenile justice, corrections, really a wide range of courses typically in today's criminal justice curriculum. And I mentioned that typically the degree in criminal justice would include somewhere around a quarter, maybe a third of degrees in criminal justice. The rest in U.S. universities is usually spread between what might be called general education and electives of various kinds. So the degree in criminal justice is not a particularly narrow degree. You know, it's not exclusively focused on either police or even just crime and justice. Uh, the, the degree usually includes a wide variety of topics. And in these different topics, I, I mean, I know I understand it's difficult to generalize, but one of the things that fascinates me or that has interested me of late is thinking about the history of police violence in America. And I wonder if in the criminal justice courses, do students learn about that history? Is that part of the training for potentially future police officers? I would say in most criminal justice uh, curricula, the answer would be yes, uh, it's in there. You know, any uh, introductory course about either policing or criminal justice would always incorporate some history. And uh, race is a big part of the history of police and justice in America. So I'm, I'm quite confident it's covered. I'm quite confident that it's uh, uh, in the textbooks, you know, that are usually used. And then in addition, uh, it would be very unusual today for that curriculum in criminal justice not to include some kind of course on race, diversity, the experiences of all kinds of people, sometimes you know, differential experiences of, of all kinds of people uh, at the hands of the police and the criminal justice system. So they're covered. Now, I think you posed the question, do students learn about fill in the blank? Uh, that's harder to say, isn't it? Uh, they hear it. They, if they read the book, they read about it. How much they learn and how much that sticks, how much that affects or changes the way they view you know, the world and society and its problems. I probably can't, but only hazard a guess about that. <laughs> Has there been any studies that try to look at any correlations between level of education of different police officers and particular outcomes or, you know, the number of incidents, the you know, the use of excessive force, or any sort of negative outcomes that police officers have been known to to do in society, or or the opposite, or positive influences, good policing. 
have there been any studies that shown correlations connected to education? And the answer is yes. There have been literally hundreds of studies. I think over the years, among other things, it's been a very popular topic for students taking graduate courses, perhaps doing their thesis or dissertation, you know, on the impact of education on police performance, police behavior, some version of that. So altogether, hundreds of studies. Uh, the evidence is mostly mixed. That sounds like a cop-out, but no pun intended. <laughs> but uh, I would say there's not any strong evidence that education, separate from other factors, uh, significantly affects police behavior. There have been some studies, some individual studies, that suggest that uh, officers with higher levels of education might be less likely to use force, might uh, uh, engage in less misconduct, have fewer complaints against them. But those have not been big studies, they've been small, so their generalizability is really sort of unknown. I'd also say that one of the most common types of studies over the years has been surveys. So it's, you know, survey hundreds, thousands of police officers on various topics. Uh, and among other things, of course, ask them about their level of education. And usually on those kinds of surveys, uh, the impact of level of education is nil. Uh, it just washes out. Wow. Wow. That's quite surprising in a way. So I, I guess you've been involved in various levels and sectors of policing for, for a very long time now, I, I think, when I read your biography. How do you explain then, you know, the death of George Floyd, but that's, it's not a one-off event. There's been this long pattern, as we've seen, for perhaps 100 years, the whole history of, of policing. How then can we explain some of these, you know, racist, negative outcomes of policing? Yeah, that's a big question. Uh, we would say that's way above my pay grade. <laughs> but I would be inclined to say the fundamental underlying reasons are societal. I think police reflect the society in which they grow up, live, do their work more than anything else. And uh, you know, the U.S., of course, has a history of slavery and segregation, and uh, race continues to affect all kinds of processes in American society. Uh, and so it would almost be a surprise if it didn't affect policing, uh, that police could somehow stand outside of, you know, the problems that we have in society at large. Sounds like making an excuse, I suppose, and I don't mean it to sound that way, but I think more than anything else. In other words, I, I'm doubtful, and I don't think there's any real data on this, but I'm doubtful that American police are any more racist or are any more likely to discriminate, any more likely to hold prejudices toward people of color than society at large. But wouldn't the big problem, though, is that the police officers have weapons and have the authority of the state to use violence? And so they might reflect society at large, but most people in society aren't in their position. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree with that. And obviously, the consequences in some ways are most dire. You know, um, if a school teacher treats students of color differently in third grade, the consequences, although significant, are just not as in your face uh, as they might be with police. Or if the healthcare system treats uh, patients of color differently, uh, uh, yes, there's consequences, but they're probably not captured on video and played on YouTube quite as often as when it's you know, when it's the police. And your point is well taken. I mean, the police uh, have guns and they. They take, can take people's freedom away, and they can use force against people. 
and uh, those are obviously serious consequences. Um, so I think it's rightfully a, a topic of great concern and attention. I just don't think, you know, there, there's a, right now, as you are well aware in the U.S., there's all this uh, debate about whether there is systemic or structural racism in the police. Well, my own belief is, and again, data are hard to pin down, is I would probably say no more so than in American society in general. And that's not to deny it, but it's it's uh, a function of our society, I think. Mm. Yeah, I mean, when I think of some of the structural issues that have people have pointed to lately uh, of structural racism, it's things like a Supreme Court case that allows for this objective reasonableness that has been used often to get police officers to not get in trouble, basically, by the law after they um, kill uh, particularly black people during during various arrests um, or confrontations. Or people talk about union arbitration as another structural issue that basically makes it almost impossible for reform-minded police chiefs or mayors to fire police officers who've used excessive force. Um, and so, or, or this notion of qualified immunity, that, that's been an idea that has been talked about quite a lot, which is basically about how uh, police officers are not liable unless they vi violate, quote unquote, clearly established federal law, which can be quite problematic in, in some cases. So wouldn't those be structural issues that do impact the police and are partly to blame for, for what we're seeing today and, and also in the past? I say yes. Uh, but there's probably a discussion to be had on each of those points that, that you brought up on the issue, for example, of arbitration and the difficulty, as you pointed out correctly, uh, reform-minded chiefs have a really hard time uh, firing officers who they believe have done something that's just not acceptable. And uh, something around a half of those officers, it depends on, it's a different in different places, they get, end up getting their jobs back. Um, imagine being the police chief that fires an officer and then an arbitrator tells you, you have to take them back. It's like, holy cow. Um, but sort of what's behind that, you know, police officers are workers. Uh, they have rights. They feel sometimes like they have a really hard job. And if they make a mistake, they're vilified and can lose their job. And so, of course, they organize as workers do in many different fields to try to protect their rights. And, and that's the origin of that. You know, it's, it's, I don't think the origin is racist. I think uh, the impact could end up sometimes having an, a differential impact by race. But the orig origin is working people wanting to protect their rights against their bosses, which, you know, uh, most uh, woke people, most progressive people at first blush would say, oh yeah, that's a good thing. Except what? And I do as well. I mean, I, I'm a proud union member myself here in the in the UK. Um, so it's yeah, it, it's interesting to think through what that actually means. And does arbitration actually give more power to the employee? And I guess in this case, it certainly does because yeah. employers are having a hard time firing yeah. employees who act badly. I remember a book that I had to read when I was an undergrad student, which means it was a book that was written a long time ago, probably written in the 1960s or 70s. And it was uh, one of the first comparisons of policing in the United States and in Europe. And the author, a guy named George Berkeley, a political scientist, among other things in that book, argued that unionization of American police 
uh, would be a good thing or was a good thing because it would help uh, ally them with working people. It would give them more in common with other working people. It would have a kind of a democratizing impact, which in some ways maybe it did, but obviously there are also, you know, unforeseen you know, sort of side effects that come along. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that The international comparison is quite interesting. So, you know, living in London and you see police officers around, you know, none of them carry weapons or, or guns, I should say. They carry other types of weapons. But, the, you know, guns are quite difficult uh, and rare to see just sort of every day on the street. Uh, it takes a particular type of incidence for that unit to be called out. Whereas in America, it seems like it is the military that, you know, the weapons that police officers have on a regular basis and access to on a regular basis is, is to be honest, it's a bit frightening to see photos of. And it, it does seem like uh, a war zone. And, you know, how did that even come about? You know, is this this seems like it's a, a, a strange problem. I, I would imagine some of my listeners who live, you know, not in America probably have a very hard time comprehending this notion of police officers with semi-automatic weapons. It is interesting. I reflect back that I think uh, certainly when I started out in policing, which again was decades ago, uh, police had, had a, you know, a sidearm, uh, a handgun, a pistol uh, that they carried on their belt. And that was it. If they were in a patrol car, maybe there was a shotgun, you know, in the trunk. And that was pretty much the full extent of the armament that police carried uh, back in the day. I don't think it changed much until after 9-11 in the United States. Um, and I think after 9-11, the sense of a greater threat, not, I mean, with 9-11, it wasn't a greater threat from our own, uh, you know, citizens, but this threat of uh, international terrorism, I think, led to police carrying rifles, semi-automatic rifles, the switch to semi-automatic pistols, and the inclusion of even more powerful weapons in SWAT units and that sort of thing. I think before 9-11, I could be wrong about this, but I think before 9-11, we'd have been more likely to see a police officer carrying a semi-automatic rifle in Europe than in the United States. And I don't mean to say that every officer in Germany or France or, or some other European country was carrying such a rifle, but I know it was not that uncommon to see. Uh, but after 9-11, I think that flipped. And, and I think it was a pretty big shock at the moment to a lot of Americans. But already, I think we've almost gotten used to it. Yeah, I mean, until there's protests and, you know, after George Floyd and you see these military tanks almost and these these vehicles that are seem to be armored as if they're going into some, you know, some battle. Um, and so it seems like it's it, the pictures you see now seem to really be the police equipment seems to be coming through. Um, as being excessive, as being sort of over the top. It, it does. And I think that the first that I remember really being, you know, sort of hit with uh, images like that, the, the American public, the broad American public being hit with images like that was in Ferguson, uh, Missouri, which I think that was now about five years ago, following, uh, you know, an officer involved uh, uh, shooting of Michael Brown, if I remember his name correctly. And then there was there was civil unrest for weeks in the aftermath of that. And there were uh, armored vehicles and and officers, uh, you know, carrying uh, big weapons and so on. And then, as you are pointing out, we've seen that now uh, this past week or two in the aftermath of George Floyd. By the way, we haven't seen it in every city. 
that's one of the crazy things about the U.S. is uh, there have been some cities that have that have had big protests and have handled it almost exclusively with officers in soft clothes. You know, uh, can you name an example? What city did that this recent round of protests? Yeah, I, I know my own city, uh, Baltimore, um, a city with, mm. a, I mean, it's a violent American city with over 300 murders a year, a city that had its own police involved uh, killing four years ago and riots in the aftermath of that. But these past two weeks, knock on wood, big protests, plenty of police out on the street uh, working the protest, protecting people, protecting businesses but uh, virtually no injuries. Uh, the vast majority of officers wearing their regular uniforms, talking to protesters, marching with protesters, taking kneels with protesters, reading aloud the names of, of, uh, of individuals killed at the hands of the police with protesters. And uh, I, I don't believe there was uh, hardly any use of police in what we think of as riot gear, you know, with-, with So why the difference, you know, from, from Baltimore compared to, say, Minneapolis. I mean, that seems like a world apart then. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't know that I do know the answer. That's, that's a big question. Uh, it Clearly, some of it has to do with, not all of it, some of it has to do with the actions of the police and some to do with the actions of the protesters. I mean, if protesters start burning police cars, attempting to ransack police stations, uh, looting on a large scale businesses. The police seem compelled to act, and it's it's hard to deal with that kind of uh, riotous behavior uh, without being forceful. And and I think that's part of what happened in some cities is it was response to what was happening. But there's always the question of did some police action precipitate that in the first place? Right. Right. Yeah. Chicken or the egg. Yeah. And obviously, in the case of Minneapolis, that's where you know the terrible event had occurred in the first place. So we might anticipate that emotions and anger would have been the strongest there of, of anywhere. Could it also be something to do with leadership and sort of the way in which the police force engages with the community they, they serve and protect? I certainly believe that. In the case of Baltimore, where I am, again, they had an awful incident four or five years ago, but there's been a really systematic effort since then to try to re-engage with the community, to be more transparent, more open, I would say every reform that we've read about over the last week that police departments should adopt have already been adopted in Baltimore, you know, year, two, three years ago. And so I would go so far as to say Baltimore has been trying to do at least all the right things for several years. In addition, the local community, including activists in the local community, still remember the riot four or five years ago and the devastation that that caused in their own community. And so I think there's a more mature, more focused, more deliberative, still very serious approach being taken by, by activists in Baltimore who want change, you know, on a, on a social societal level, fundamental structural change, but are, have concluded that, you know, burning the city down is not a useful step in that direction. So I think it's a combination. I think the, communi the community has matured and so has the police department. Right. And are there any particular reforms from Baltimore that you can point to that, you know, other cities and municipalities in America that are thinking about reforming their police departments in the wake of George Floyd? That would be ones that would top your list, so to speak. Oh, that's that is so hard. Um, 
again, you know, they're in the news this last week. We've probably seen mentioned virtually everything that I could ever think of. You know, I, I was struck by a video I watched just yesterday made by a fellow named David Cooper, C-O-U-P-E-R. Uh, David is the former police chief in Madison, Wisconsin. He's been retired for 20 years, but still very active. And uh, even 20 years ago, he was much more progressive than, you know, probably almost any other police chief in America. But the, the, in the video I watched yesterday, he was taking a walk in the woods. He's now, by the way, a minister, Episcopal minister. But uh, I think the, his, uh, it was almost like a sermon, I suppose, as he was walking in the woods. But he, what he thinks fundamentally has to happen is that the, the notion of justice has to be the prime motivator of police, both why they join the police and the guiding light for how they behave as police. And in conjunction with that, uh, his argument was it has to come from the heart. It can't just be something they have a lecture on in the police academy. It can't just be something that they sign a policy, you know, that says, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's really got to be internalized. So in, in a way, it's the whole, the culture would have to change. Yeah, that's, that's a good way of summing it up, is that the culture has to change. And, and if I could just say, there is uh, an argument to be made, it's often made, that the police culture in America is dysfunctional, you know, it's gone off the rails, etc. I think that's a gross uh, overgeneralization. I've done some studies myself, I've been part of studies, uh, looking at officers across like 100 police departments. And at least based on what officers say in surveys, in response to various kinds of questions, if that's at least some indication of what the culture is like, it varies tremendously across police departments. Uh, there are police departments where officers will, you know, a vast majority will say, I don't trust my bosses, I don't trust the community. We've got to stick together because it's us versus them. And there are other police departments where practically nobody says that. So, you know, I don't personally think the police occupational culture writ large is as much a factor as the individual, uh, or I should say, organizational culture in the police agencies that officers work in. To the extent that that's true, then it goes to leadership, of course, to the kinds of people that get hired in the first place, how they're trained and socialized, the policies and, and other uh, guidance that they get about how to do their job, all of which affects the culture. Yeah. And it, I mean, it makes sense then that this would be really difficult to reform given 18,000 police departments and potentially 18,000 cultures of policing. I agree. And also, you know, I think highly unlikely that something that Congress or the president can do in Washington that can somehow or another significantly fix, you know, anything that needs fixing throughout the country. I think it has to come from within the profession of policing. And America has somewhere between seven and 800,000 police. It's a big operation. There are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of really fine, upstanding you know, uh, individuals in, in policing who I think have the capacity to, to raise their profession significantly, but it won't happen. <laughs> so what are the ideas that's being discussed quite loudly, I should say now, is this idea of defunding the police. And I think the idea here is to remove some of the budget from police departments and put more money into various social services like mental health services or social workers and sort of narrow the focus of what police should be doing in a city or in a municipality. What are your views on this notion of defunding the police? 
I think we're still waiting to figure out what that phrase really means. You know, I think it's being used a lot right now. And I'm pretty sure it means different things to different people. But that said, the point that you made is, I think, uh, absolutely uh, an important one. And that, I mean, many people within policing have been saying for years that they've been saddled with jobs that they're ill-prepared to do. And I think that's true. I think that's partly because in America for at least 40 years, you know, the prevailing view, at least at the national level, has been that government is bad, that the smaller the government is, the better. And we don't like paying taxes. Uh, You know, this is part of the American way. But a consequence of that is that the social services, the social safety net has just been decimated all over the country. You know, fewer social workers, fewer counselors, fewer everything you can think of to help people in need. And so guess what? It's all landed in the laps of the police because at 11 o'clock at night or three o'clock in the morning or you know, in some really, uh, you know, dangerous neighborhood, all you got is the cops. And uh, the police would rather not be doing most of those things, but they, there hasn't been any choice uh, in an awful lot of uh, places in America. So to the extent that there's a serious willingness to rebuild some of those, you know, social services and, and so forth, uh, I think that would be a tremendous idea. Now, I'm sure most people in policing would say, but not at our expense. <laughs> uh, you know, um, uh, so something has to give, doesn't it? E- either the police slice of the pie has got to get smaller or else the pie itself has got to get bigger, uh, which would mean raise taxes. Yeah, raise taxes at uh, the local level or the federal government injects more money into into states and local governments to pay for more social services. Exactly. One way or another, it's, it's, either, it's either higher taxes or take some money away from, in this case, the police and give it to somebody else. And that's a fight that people are going to, I think we're going to go through that over the next, you know, years. You know, I, I have a friend who's a, he's actually retired now for about a year, but he was a police chief in a small town in Kentucky. And about five years ago, he convinced his city council uh, to let him hire a social worker instead of a police officer. Uh, and this is, again, this is a small agency, maybe 20 officers, something like that. And so that was kind of a crazy idea. It worked out so well that now after that, he hired a second one. And the cops love it because there's somebody with some actual skills in the, you know, working with uh, victims of crime, the victims of uh, you know, domestic abuse, you know, children in need, substance abusers, you name it. There's somebody to work with those people who actually knows what they're doing. And, and the police officer doesn't have to do as much as, as previously. So there have been little, little moves like that around the country, but not on a big scale. And it'll be real interesting to see if, if because of the times that we're in right now, that kind of uh, movement picks up steam. Now, let me just say one more thing. I mean, I live in a city, Baltimore, that has 300 murders a year a city of only 600,000 people. I mean, that's an extremely high murder rate. And Baltimore also has, a, I think, one of the highest uh, robbery rates, robbery being taking something from someone with the threat of force, often by sticking a gun in their face. So it's a city with a lot of violent crime. It's not exactly clear to me who's going to deal with that if it's not the police. Right. So there is, there is an, when it comes to violence and protection, there's a role for the police, but there's all sorts of other issues that have fallen onto the police that there's probably space to bring in experts, bring in people who have been trained to 
handle and manage and care for such issues in a community. What that looks like, of course, is sort of a big question mark and will probably be dependent on the locality in which these communities or which in which these police forces are located, since it's so decentralized in America. But what's interesting, I guess, hopeful in a way to me, what you're saying is that there actually almost appears to be a political coalition that would push for similar reforms that would include the police rather than excluding them in the conversation. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. And, and uh, right now for people in the police, I'm sure it feels like you know, they're just being hammered from all directions and they're being criticized. And, and uh, I would say in most instances, it's very unfair. I'd also say that at least up until two weeks ago, uh, if you did surveys, nearly every neighborhood in every city, if you gave them a choice, would you rather have fewer police in your neighborhood or more? They'd almost all say more. You know, uh, they've done surveys in Baltimore over the last couple of years. Again, a city with lots of problems. And uh, residents were most likely to say, we'd like to see police more in our neighborhoods and we'd like them to be more involved become more a part of our community as opposed of course to just sort of driving through or coming when there's a big problem so i don't even think right now once the emotion of what we're going through settles a little bit i don't think most people are actually opposed to police helping them solve their problems but i do agree with you that there i have no doubt at all that we could do a better job of getting it right and divvying up responsibilities in a, in a more sensible way. There might even be a financial advantage because believe it or not, police have become pretty darn expensive. Police salaries in the United States in conjunction with benefits, usually a pretty good pension, a lot of equipment. The individual police officer is costly. And I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if you could afford two social workers for every one cop or something like that, you know. So there might be some might be some advantages from that as well. Well, Gary Cordner, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Just really nice to talk to you and think a little bit more about policing and education of policing and reimagining what a future of policing might look like. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Gary Cordner is a retired professor and dean, former police officer and former police chief. His latest article is entitled Police Education in the USA and was published in the recent issue of the journal Policing. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, Lushik Waba, Fatih Akhtas, and In Jung Cho. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, and listeners like you. Please consider becoming a monthly sponsor of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. All U.S.-based donations are tax deductible. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.